0: Hello and welcome to Bellhaven Podcast. I'm your host, Brent Weber. On today's episode, you'll be listening to PSY 243, Human Growth and Development with Professor Mark Hunter. I hope you listen and enjoy. Welcome to Unit 3 in Psychology 243, Human Growth and Development. In this unit, we're going to look at cognitive and physical development during middle childhood and also social development, emotional development in middle childhood. In your textbook, we're looking at chapter six, Off to School, Cognitive and Physical Development in Middle Childhood. So in this uh, stage, we're going to refer back to Piaget. And this is when uh, we refer to the stage of concrete operations. In the last unit, we talked about how children in the pre-operational stage are unable to understand things from another person's perspective. They have trouble understanding that if you pour juice from a short wide glass to a tall thin glass, that the juice has not changed, the amount hasn't changed. At this age, they're able to understand this. And this is when children go off to school. They're um, you know, starting kindergarten, first grade. And um, so they have a better, uh, stronger ability to understand these different concepts. Um, when we say concrete, we're talking about things that are tangible, things that they can hold. So oftentimes when they're learning about, for example, math, they use what we call manipulables, where you can take a, um, an object and sort of saying, two plus two is four, you'll have two of something, two of something else, and you have four of them. And so this is where they're able to quite understand this uh, uh, understanding. Now later on, as they get on, Older, they're they're engaged in what we call formal operational, where they're able to think uh, hypothetically and use more abstract thought. At this age, children are starting to learn what it takes to learn something, and they have to they have homework, they have assignments, and work in school. And they start to understand that just the first time that something is presented to them doesn't mean that they understand it. That they've got to practice their math tables. They have to practice their spelling words. And so they learn these rehearsal memory strategies. And and as we get older, of course, we learn other ways to learn things. Um, They are, of course, they this doesn't always come naturally to them. They need a teacher, a parent, to be able to show them what works. So, uh, children at this age may think that you know I looked over my spelling words, like I got it, but they never practiced them. And so, teaching them the importance of practice and and trying them again and again until they get them correct is uh, is an important skill that they need to learn. Um, in cognitive development, the um, we often refer to in in the area of intelligence during this time. And there's different theories of intelligence and depending on your uh, Spearman's uh, theory is goes with this idea of general intelligence or as often shown as a small g. And this refers to really those basic skills that you need to succeed in education. Uh, Math, spelling, it measure, you know, memory, working memory and things like that. And so the intelligence tests based off these uh, principles are really um, focus on those areas. Uh, last few decades, uh, Gardner came up with what we refer to as multiple intelligence, where he says that not just this general intelligence that is more effective in school, but you know, some children are really good with linguistics, language. Some are really good with math and science. Some are really good with um, athletics and so on. And so there's, um, there's been more acceptance of this because we've seen people who've had maybe a skill that they're really good at that may be different from the general intelligence. But the idea of general intelligence really has a close application. To education. Um, another theory by Robert Sternberg is, um, is intelligence is our ability to obtain our short and long-term goals and to analyze problems, to generate a solution, to become creative and we deal with new situations and, and have that practical ability to know which solutions will work and which will not work. So the history of intelligence tests really goes back to France and uh, with uh, uh, Binet, And his idea was to understand what children should know to succeed in the French uh, educational system. For example, he wanted to know what does the average eight-year-old know? And so he asked eight-year-olds a variety of different uh, questions and Different, asked different problems to solve and things. And so he gained an understanding of what eight years old, no, nine, seven, six, five, various ages. And using all this, he was able to come up with an understanding of if a child's intelligence quotient, IQ, was appropriate for their age. Uh, this was taken in America by Chairman and they created the Stanford-Binet uh, test in 1916. And at that time, the formula was mental age over chronological age times 100. Um, we don't use that way anymore. We use more of a statistical measurement uh, that um, uses standard deviations and such. But um, while some people, you know, have questions about intelligence tests and what they do measure, they do predict. Um, success and achievement in uh, the school and the workplace, and have an understanding of what's very valuable. We, we know through a lot of times through twin studies, the impact of heredity and IQ comes that um, as children are more genetically similar, their IQs are more similar. Uh, adopted children's IQs are really more like their biological parents than their adoptive parents and while um, so heredity really gives the, the raw material for intelligence environment is able to is really to what do you do with that so think of heredity for intelligence as like a seed you plant it in the ground and you got all of what you need there for say um corn or something, whatever you could put. But it also takes the right environment. It takes nutrition. It takes sunlight. It takes water. And so all these things are valuable with increasing someone's intelligence. Uh, when we talk about special children, special needs, usually we'll refer to as gifted children, <clears throat> have high scores on IQ tests. And it's uh, usually based what we call about uh, two standard deviations above, so about 130 IQ or something. Um, Now, this is not a strict rule. Some school systems will use uh, Gardner's understanding and multiple intelligence. And if a child shows particular affinity toward music or something like that, they'll give them opportunities to develop their skills in those areas. Children with an IQ of 70 or below are referred to with having an intellectual disability. Now, an intellectual disability is not the same as a learning disability. A learning disability is really when you have an average IQ, but you struggle in reading or math or, or maybe uh, some other things. Intellectual disability means that, there's, um, that you have a difficult time operating in our our culture and environment—they um, have—they um, have challenges. Uh, this can be a result of a genetic effect or uh, brain trauma or a variety of reasons, but their overall abilities are lowing. So, intellectual ability is an IQ of seventy below. A learning disability—you can have an average or or above average IQ, but have a deficiency in one particular area. Children with ADHD or Attention Deficit Hyperactive Disorder um, are distinguished Have can be either hyperactive, inattentive, or repulsive. And you may have uh, heard people say, "I don't have ADHD. I have ADD." Actually, it's referred. To, all of these are referred to as ADHD. And um, but a child can be ADHD with um, inattentive disorder, meaning that they're not uh, focusing on the, but, and be, and not be hyperactive. Um, there are different types of treatment for this. Um, a lot of times different types of medication and uh, and it helps, but it doesn't cure ADHD. Usually if a, if a child has ADHD, they're gonna have it in some form as an adult as well. Um, probably the most important skill that you need in, education not just in elementary, middle, high school but also in college is reading because no matter what subject you have you're going to need to read material for it. Um, The understanding of word recognition is just understanding what the letters are and then uh, learning to make the sounds. Um, You know most of you were taught by phonemic awareness where you're Aware of what the the phonemes are, the shorter uh, parts of the word and what they sound like and putting that together. Uh, I was a generation where we actually learned the whole word. We didn't learn phonetically and you had to learn what, uh, identify what the whole word was there and we didn't break it down in parts. Comprehension is the act of extracting meaning from the text. And the ability to read something is one thing, the ability to understand it is another and uh, connected with this ability is working memory. Because when you're reading, you're using your working memory. You have in your long-term memory, you're, you're rec- seeing a word, you've recorded that, in your long-term memory, you're pulling it up, but now you have to connect it to the words you just read. So working memory is important in reading comprehension and understanding that. And if children are having struggles in that, there's different types of strategies that can be enacted to help them. Um, In mathematics, usually we're taught addition and subtraction first. And um, there, and you know, a lot of times math tables are learned just by rote memorization. You just have to to understand and, um, but actually different cultures have different ways to to do math. Um, There's different cultures, I've been in India where I've seen, Children who are on the street do um, quite complex addition and subtraction in their head and be able to get the right change and things like that without the help of a calculator or any piece of uh, paper or pencil. But they wouldn't understand how to write it down uh, on a piece of paper. They are able to do it just cognitively. So uh, math skills can be uh, dependent on the culture and the environment that you're raised in. Physical development during this time is in elementary that children are growing more at a steady pace. In infancy, we just have this quick burst of, of growth and, you know, it just seems like every month the child is growing and doing that. And, and at elementary age, it's just sort of a slow steady. Um, usually boys and girls uh, during this period tend to be about the same size. And for a school-age child, they need about 2,400 calories uh, for nutritional needs. This is because their metabolism is higher. And um, that the importance of breakfast is emphasized that um, where you should get about 1 of their calories to that. Um, if children are not able to have breakfast before they go to school, they have trouble concentrating in school. and, and uh, Some schools actually have to provide um, breakfast for children to allow them to get that nutrition they need. Fine and gross motor skills uh, really develop during this period. We're talking about gross motor skills. We're talking about things that we use our arms and our legs for and uh, running and throwing and things. Um, Fine motor skills are when we pick up Like a pencil or a pen or things, and we're able to to write. And usually, girls tend to uh, do a little bit better in this than boys at first. And but um, and boys tend to focus more on gross motor skills. And there's uh, also can be some expectations about what needs to occur. Boys are expected to be in activities that emphasize gross motor skills. Girls are expected to be in activities that maybe emphasize fine motor skills. Chapter 7, we're looking at the social-emotional development of children in middle school, and not school, middle school, excuse me, middle childhood. Family relationships is really the the primary area of of interaction for the child. Um, There's different theories about this and that a child is not just an individual but they're working in a system. You have the individual child but the home that they grow up in and then outside of that the school or the church they attend their neighborhood and things like that and all these different organizations and groups and institutions have an impact on that development for that child. So not just the family is the primary one, but also the school, but also the church, and how does that have an impact on the development? Um, the degree in which warmth is expressed and um, is has a big impact on the development of children, um, where they feel like they're they're cared for, they're loved. And the other one is control, and um, And that is where is there enough control to give guidance to the child or is there not enough control where the child doesn't have very many expectations and they're able to kind of do what they want. So effective parenting really is a combination of this interaction between warmth and control and setting standards and forcing them, trying to anticipate conflicts, but also loving children through this time. Different parenting styles are are shown during this time, and so the authoritarian parents are controlling. They have lots of rules, but they're not very involved. They don't show much warmth. Authoritative parents have rules and have control, but they're also responsive to the children's needs. They're also showing them love and concern. Permissive parents are loving, but they don't have very many rules. The children kind of can do what they want and uninvolved parents are neither warm nor controlling. Um, of all these types, authoritative parenting style really is the best. We're giving for the social and cognitive development. Children know that there's expectations, there's rules or guidance, but there's also love. During this time, the, uh, the parents' involvement in direct instruction is important. You know, giving the, if they're learning new skills and they're learning how to cope through life. Um, also, just being a model. Children are watching their parents, their caregivers, and what they're doing, and trying to understand how to do. It. And children use observational learning, where they're seeing how you as a parent are handling this situation. You know, if you, as a parent, lose your temper and start cussing and stuff, of course your child will start doing that because they think that's the appropriate behavior. Um, also, children need to hear feedback on their behavior. They need a positive reinforcement. They're being, when they do things well, to let them know. But if they're going down the wrong path, to, to correct them and give them instruction. Punishment is most effective if it's prompt, if it's consistent, and it's accompanied by an explanation and delivered by a person that someone has a warm relationship with. Um, Punishment means that you want to stop certain behaviors. Um, There's limits to punishment because what it's saying is it suppresses behaviors but it doesn't always eliminate them and it doesn't necessarily tell them what the right behavior is. And um, and so there's different attitudes toward spanking and, and role of uh, physical punishment. But um, there's other alternatives such as timeout where the child is removed from the environment for a while. And if the parents engage in chronic conflict, there's lots of arguing that occurs between that. Um, it can be harmful to the child if they're going through a time when mom and dad or whoever's in the household or is constantly having conflict that'll have a, an impact on the child um, but when they children need to understand that people do argue they do get in mom and dads or whoever's in the household do get arguments but they're able to resolve those things constructively and um and so Parents need to agree on the right way to handle a situation, and uh, if there's a conflict that comes up with the child, to get together and understand what's the best way to handle this situation. Uh, unfortunately, divorce does happen, and it can harm children in a variety of ways. Uh, sometimes the, the harm can be short-term, and children are resilient, and they're able to overcome that. Sometimes it's more long-term. and um, but children do tend to do better when the parents are getting along and stay involved and with them and not to fight or use the, the child as a, as a weapon against the other parent. Um, the um, children can thrive in a blended family when you have, uh, a, you know, a mom and a stepdad or something like that. But uh, it's more difficult when the stepfather brings their own child or children to the family. It seems to have more stress related to those situations. Um, that learns different factors that contribute to child abuse and um, such as poverty or social isolation or the culture's views on violence and what uh, what's appropriate and allowed. Um, it's been said that uh, children, found out that children, people who Abuse their children often were abused as children themselves, and so to try to stop that cycle of abuse is important. And um, the uh, and so there's it's important to understand what causes that, to address it, and to be able to prevent children from being the targets of that. Um, children who are abused often lag in their cognitive and social development of the emotional stress friendships are important during this time um, it's usually based off this idea of you mutually like each other you have different you have same interests you you have the same neighborhood and things like that and children understand the value of friendships um, usually early on children are friends with kids that are about the same age same race same sex same attitude and things like that and as they grow older, they're able to expand their, their realm of uh, sphere of their peers. Um, older children and adolescents, they tend to form cliques. You ever go into a high school uh, lunchroom and look at how the tables are set up and who's sitting at the tables. And you can tell that athletes are here and the nerds are over here and the uh, music kids are over here. And so they tend to form cliques and that's a stage that we'll talk a little bit more about later. But uh, they want to be uh, part of a crowd. They want to have some relationships. Um, But any type of crowd or group that you're in usually has this idea of a dominance hierarchy. Someone's a leader. Um, And sometimes this is decided by the physical power, the oldest, biggest child. They have that role um, and some may have where different skills are important and they're they're emphasized um, children that are um, they're popular in school usually are able to have some are uh, skilled academically and socially um, <clears throat> some kids unfortunately use uh, aggression and uh, to achieve their uh, social goals, such as bullying, <clears throat> I gotta stop just for a second. Um, okay, I'm sorry. I just couldn't. Uh, I'm on seven two. Uh, let me do this. Are you gonna pick up? Are you going pick up just the beginning of the slide, here? Yeah. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> With regard to peers, most popular children are skilled academically and socially. Uh, Unfortunately though, some children use um, aggression to achieve their goals of popularity. Um, When they do this, other children may uh, reject them because they're too aggressive. Um, Other children are rejected because they're too timid or withdrawn. Um, If this rejection is repeated again and again, it can lead to problems in the child's development and, and behavioral problems. Um, we've, studies have shown that um, many highly aggressive children in school become aggressive or violent adults. The, um, the role of electronic media is such, a, has such a big impact uh, today where in Previous generations, parents controlled how much TV time you had. But with the advent of uh, smartphones and computers and things, the children are having more access and they kind of make a lot of those decisions. When TV programs or different um, media shows um, violent scenes and really aggressive scenes, it can influence children to become more aggressive in their behavior. And, but it also can have another impact to act more pro-socially. So, um, the pr- programs such as Sesame Street, you know, we're focusing on cognitive development, are effective. And um, so, there's, there's, there's really not just one sweeping um, idea that all TV or movies or games are bad. or. Or, or good, there's, there's a combination of both. And the parents need to control and understand what a child is seeing and using and, and give any explanations if there's things on there that are confusing. Um, video games playing has been debated for the last few decades and uh, some video games, maybe more logic games or things like that can affect and improve some cognitive skills and uh, but there's other some games where you're shooting people you have engaged in violent acts can allow uh, encourage children to become more um, aggressive when you're using social media um, it's um, it can be of course to communicate with friends and but also it op- opens up opportunities for what we call cyberbullying where people will uh, find someone or make statements or gossip about another in their group or someone else that they have contact with and uh, spread rumors and untruths about a child and that it's magnified because it's repeated and passed on to others. And that can have a definite impact and you probably see news stories about these things. When we're trying to understand others, this develops as children get older. During the early elementary years, um, children describe others by concrete characteristics, what they look like, what they sound like, and things. As they get older, they start to define people by more of the personality traits. Is he nice, or is he smart, or things. And then as they get older in adolescence, they usually combine these things and really have a, uh, an understanding of what that person not just looks like or the personality, but what are they engaged in? What you know, activities are they involved in or what causes are they involved in? Um, a theory by uh, Selman talks about um, how other people, how children understand how others think of them progresses through five stages. At first is a differentiated stage where children often confuse their own and another person's view. And the last stage, the societal stage, adolescents can take a third-person perspective and know that this perspective is influenced by context, meaning that if a child, a young child, sees something uh, happen, they're unable to remove themselves from the situation. But as they get older, you can understand that if someone's upset with you, maybe it's because they had a bad day, or maybe because something happened to that other person and they're just taking it out on you. Unfortunately, prejudice uh, can emerge during the preschool years and become stronger in the elementary years, and, and um, as it is a way to cognitively shortcut understanding people. And uh, children learn prejudice from their parents or different groups or different things that they hear and uh, from different social groups and um, probably the best way to reduce this is to expose the children to inter- uh, have interactions with children different from them and to educate them about uh, different groups and to expose them about how other people think and believe. Well, this ends this unit and I'll see you in uh, Unit 4.